This is the legendary Tom DeFalco, and you are listening to the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast of all time. And unfortunately, I was not invited to be part of this podcast. I can't believe it. A living legend like me. And they didn't even invite me. Welcome to episode 32 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast a podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And, you know, it's just been so long since we heard from this guy, I couldn't resist. Brought him back again this week. Welcome back, Mr. Jim Radloff. Thank you for having me back. It's been too long. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been seven whole days since we heard from you. Yeah. Well, this time around, we are discussing Fatal Attractions. It's an X-Universe storyline that ran through six issues, one issue each of six different titles, back in 1993, specifically X-Factor 92, X-Force 25, Uncanny X-Men 304, X-Men 25, Wolverine 75, and Excalibur 71. The writers were Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicieza, with Joe Casada getting co-potting credits on X-Factor. Pencilers include Joe Casada, Cliff Van Meter, Greg Capullo, Chris Sprouse, Paul Smith, Brandon Peterson, Jay Lee, John Romita Jr., and Andy Kubert. Some of those names mean a lot more to us now than they did in 1993. Inkers include Cliff Van Meter, Al Milgram, Kevin Conrad, Scott Hanna, Matt Ryan, Dan Green, Al Milgram, Bob Wyacek, Jimmy Palmiotti, Keith Williams, Dan Green, Terry Austin, Dan Panosian, and Tom Palmer. Colorists include Glynis Oliver, George Roussas, Mike Thomas, and Joel Rosas. Letterers are Richard Starkings, Chris Iliopoulos, and Bill Oakley. Editors are Kelly Corvis, Lisa Patrick. Those two are assistant editors. Main editor was Bob Harris, and it was all under editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco. Cover dates range from July 1993 to November 1993. The release dates ranged from May 11, 1993 to September 21, 1993. And as we've said, this came out at number 32 in the countdown. Shall we do it in plot synopsis order and get to the significance of the issue as it comes up in the story? Maybe we should actually, for this one, make sure we wait because there's actually only one of these that really has plot significance. I was thinking about it because at the time it was all very significant. There's a lot going on here. But when you think about everything that does happen in this crossover, A lot of it is very temporary, and a lot of it might have to be explained to the reader today, because this event was marking 30 years of the X-Men, all but one issue in the crossover, say, X-Men anniversary issue, the exception being Uncanny X-Men 304, which says celebrating 30 years of X-Men. So like I said, this was 30 years into the X-Men as a team, but the flip side is, as of us recording this that means it was 23 no 22 years ago yeah so this is kind of a halfway point and this is very much a crossover from the 90s mm-hmm. this was the era where there were different group editors and they were encouraged shall we say to have all of the titles in their group cross over with each other as often as possible and there's a lot of ongoing plot threads going on here just reading these six issues, there was clearly a lot that they didn't get to or didn't explain in here that would have made perfect sense if you were reading every issue of all these titles as they go. But you're kind of dropping in and out of storylines to get to this piece of the story. 
And some of these plot threads go back to at least X-Men 1 in that launch. X-Men 25, as we said, is the issue included here. Which could be why the paperback collection released in the 90s just had these six issues. The hardcover collection released more recently is an omnibus size, and the first issue in the story, X-Factor 92, begins on page 412. There's so much leading into this that I frankly haven't read. I was doing an X-Men read-through a while ago. I didn't get to this, so I've mentioned in the history of the podcast before. I was inspired to do this because Marvel published the list of 75 greatest stories. I owned 73 of them. 74 was on the shelf in the comic shop I was standing in when I read the list, and 75 could be ordered. This was story 74. So this is the one I bought because it made the list and helped inspire me to do this podcast. So I had not read it prior to this. Now, how does that compare to your own personal history with the story, Jim? Actually, this came out shortly before slash right when I was getting into comics for the first time. The first actual issue of a superhero comic that I remember having was Uncanny X-Men 303, which was the Uncanny X-Men issue right before this. And I can actually time out that this was just about the same time that my personal collection, if you will, started, because this was when Pizza Hut was doing a deal where you could come in, get a small, like, personal pizza for a kid, and then you could also pick up a limited edition X-Men comic. There were four issues, and I ended up getting three of them. I didn't get the first one, but the story is one of such ground-shaking significance that Nothing in it has been marked as canon or non-canon because it can count either way without you missing anything. But yeah, that's, like I said, this is about the time I started reading superhero comics and specifically the X-Men. The X-Men were my first team, so. Now, uh, that being said, they, they at the time had all of the advertisements in comics that said, hey, here's a place where you can order a lot of back issues if you want to see what's been happening or what's happened with these characters in the past. So I did end up, specifically this crossover, I went back and got all the issues pretty much as soon as I could, as soon as I could afford them, except for X-Factor. X-Factor arrived last night. (laughs) Okay. So I read that one for the first time last night. I ordered it in the mail, but... Yeah, so might as well go through this issue by issue then. So the X-Factor issue, it's really doing a lot to fill in an ongoing story with the Acolytes. So at this point, Magneto was missing and presumed dead following the crash of Asteroid M early on in this X-Men run. And the Acolytes were sort of following in his footsteps and doing what they felt was right and would fit with his philosophy. And they were working for some mysterious new leader. And the Acolytes show up, they're a threat. X-Factor tries to contain them. Now, in this story, we find out that they've been somehow tinkering with the mind of X-Factor's government liaison. And that's just announced at the end. She says, you don't know what I've done because of that. And then that plot thread is dropped because that's not really what Fatal Attractions is about. For those interested, when she, you know, when she says, you don't know what they did to me when they've messed with her mind, there is a footnote there. That's the issue the hardcover starts with as far as the X-Factor crossover is concerned. So specifically, the hardcover collection includes Uncanny X-Men 298 through 305, as well as 315 and Annual 17. X-Factor 87 to 92, X-Men Unlimited 1 and 2, X-Force 25, X-Men 25, Wolverine 75, and Excalibur 71. So the additional issues are X-Men Unlimited 
Uncanny and X-Factor. So then the X-Force issue, it's really about Cannonball trying to work with the team as team leader in Cable's absence, and then Cable comes back because there's another new threat coming, and they're going to have to put it together and face it as a team. And again, it's related to the Acolytes. And again, this is also when Cable rejoins the team. He's been absent for a while, apparently, and he has to be overly dramatic about it, so he doesn't just show up at the base and say, hey, everybody, I'm home. He ambushes them and knocks half of them out before anyone can get a hit in on him, and then all is pretty much immediately forgiven, and Boom Boom goes up and hugs him. (laughs) Yeah, it was odd. So following the return of Cable, we've got that Uncanny X-Men 304, and in this one, the X-Men are mourning the loss of Ilyana Rasputin. So she has recently died, presumably recently enough that that's the rest of the story that is collected in here. It was the previous issue. It was, like I said, the previous issue was the first one I had, and it was an odd way of getting it too. People who listened to the This Week in Marvel for a long time may have at one point heard them talk about the board game X-Men Alert, and the copy of that game that I got was bundled with a copy of X-Men 303, which is the issue where Ileana dies. You know, for kids. Okay. <laughs> she died of the legacy virus, which was treated very much as a late late 80s, early 90s mutant AIDS analogy. So. Yeah, and I think that would turn out to have major implications for Colossus down the road. But that's a different storyline. And that is that is much of this issue is about is just people dealing with her death, isn't it? It's it is the one event in here which is pretty monumental for this story is that this is where they stop alluding to it and hinting at it and outright reveal Magneto is alive and he's back and he is the one leading the acolytes. Actually, that was revealed in the last issue. Right. Yeah, it was revealed with the the X Force crossover to a large degree for a lot of the X Force. I couldn't remember if it was revealed as Magneto, but we definitely know that. Cable recognizes the villain. This is the point where the X-Men at large learn that Magneto's back. Cable comments that Magneto is in full armor before he, you know, almost rips Cable in half. Right, yeah. Yeah, I read that last week, and I read them all in one sitting, so it became kind of a blur. But yeah, this is the point where the X-Men react to seeing that Magneto is not dead with shock and awe, which is something that, as a reader, I go, really? Because how many times has he been declared dead and not been dead? There's a wonderful series of X-Men short cartoons on, uh, I can't remember what set. I want to say Newgrounds. And I remember it's Flash Animation. But they talk about how at the time, the, the I think it was Grant Morrison run was just ending where they'd had the battle where Magneto almost destroyed New York and Jean Grey died. And Magneto shows up and announces he's planning to destroy something. And the X-Men are like, wait, aren't you dead? No, that was actually a Magneto clone. Pro- no, that was the first time you died back in the 60s. No, the- <laughs> no, that was the time you died over there. No, that was the time you died over there. And they just talk about how nobody stays dead. Just stop arguing. I'm going to kill you all. That would just compound the problem when we all come back to life. Yeah, how they run through about everyone's already been dead. And then if memory serves, that is a great one. And it's another character who was supposed to be dead at the time shows up and saying, no one's dying while I'm around. And it's, oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah, that was a good one. But with Magneto back from the dead, yet again, Professor Xavier puts together a plan to take the X-Men, or a very select team of the X-Men, to Asteroid M 
in what is basically an assassination attempt. This is now X-Men 25. Yeah, this is part four of Fatal Attractions, and they're going to take him head on. Xavier's plan is to basically use his telepathy to go out from Magneto, turn him into a vegetative state, but he's weakened, so he needs Jean Grey to come in and help him. Meanwhile, the other X-Men are coming in, and you know he's got a backup team designed to keep the Acolytes and Magneto busy. And you know what? If they can get the death shot in and just kill him outright, well, that's okay, too. And he does have a hard time getting in there mentally. They're sort of, you know, able to put Magneto off and prevent the Acolytes from doing from reaching their immediate goals. But the X-Men do not succeed in either vegetizing, I guess, if we are going to invent the word or kill a Magneto. Magneto, however, is able to actually rip the adamantium off of Wolverine's bones. So Wolverine, as of the end of this issue, no longer has an adamantium skeleton. And the damage caused to his body by ripping that metal out is severe enough that his healing factor may not be able to keep up. And he's kind of gone into shock. So Wolverine issue 75 is all about the race to get Wolverine medical attention before he dies. And it's a pretty close race. They almost crashed the X-Men's vehicle, the SR-71 Blackbird, because it was, you know, it's not a Quinjet. It was adapted for travel in space, but it wasn't meant for it. I suspect part of the reason they included the X-Factor issue, not just because it was an official part of the crossover, but also because that sort of sets up Quicksilver's relationship with the X-Men now, because he joins them just for this mission because of Magneto's involvement. Don't ask me why the Scarlet Witch wasn't invited. Because she was with the Avengers at the time. Yeah, so. So the reason Wanda isn't actually involved here is that she was a full-time member of the Avengers at the time, and... If you kept reading these runs, at least a couple of them, you would see her next issue in a couple of these because the very next issue for the X-Men was a crossover with the Avengers called Blood Ties. Yeah, so the different group editors had different characters, and that's leaving her out of the story makes sense from the political office politics who's got the rights to what standpoint. From a story perspective, they should have invited her a couple issues earlier, but the Avengers team had plans for her, so they couldn't make that happen Mm -hmm. now speaking of magneto's daughter was this before polaris was revealed as his daughter because i could have sworn that was known before this but the acolytes stop their attack when i think it's spoor sees quicksilver and says the sun and and just bows to him like religiously but polaris is also on the team and i'm like well isn't she the not only his daughter but right now as the canton stands his only living daughter yeah but as the canon stood in 1993 she wasn't his daughter they had previously revealed that she was his daughter but by the time this came out they revealed that that reveal was not true and it was just parallel evolution in their mutant abilities and it was complete coincidence so yeah so that that's why they don't react to her because at that point the official canon said that she was not his daughter mm. that's gone back and forth a couple of times and once we finish up with the Excalibur, I'll have a couple, a little bit more to say about how temporary things are. Yeah, because Excalibur is, by and large, a mourning issue. And a lot of it is that, you know, the X-Men want Colossus back because he has joined the Acolytes. He's not in a healthy headspace following the death of his sister. And he's finally getting, you know, apparently Professor X's plan is not working. Maybe it's time to try Magneto's approach. So he had joined the Acolytes, although he was still loyal enough to the X-Men that he was sort of their inside man that helped him get onto Asteroid M and stage the big assault in X-Men 25. But Excalibur 71 is when the X-Men 
go to Excalibur, specifically Kitty Pride, and say, we want your help getting Colossus back. And she refuses to betray him, so she does go talk to him, but she lets him make his own decision about where to go from there. And meanwhile, Excalibur fights the Acolytes again. And for at least Colossus's personal catharsis, this is the point where he first really is shown crying over losing Ileana, because he's been very stoic before this. He, in Uncanny, he said that he felt nothing, and he was just burning some of his old paintings. And he clearly went through sort of a numbness for a while, or just an emptiness, and he yelled at Xavier later, but he didn't actually cry until here and here. He just has a bit where he's curled up in Kitty's lap almost as much as a six, seven-foot guy can be against a girl as small as Kitty. Yeah, it is a nice moment for them as a couple, showing how, you know, they still respect each other and, you know, how they interact. But, yeah, reading just these six issues in isolation, I think it's not as engaging as some of the other stories are, but that's just because the editorial style of the 90s was keep 18 plot threads going bubbling on various burners all at once so that there's no clean break point for people to drop the title and they always feel compelled to buy the next issue. That was the mindset, and by and large, it works. Right? If you were reading these at the time, that's part of the reason of the comic crash. People did feel compelled to get the whole line, to get the whole story. Or, for the case of those of us who were in junior high and high school with limited budgets, we would compare notes with friends, and different people would get different titles and just read each other's issues so that everyone had access to the whole story, even if they didn't own it. But, yeah, by the time it's it's said and done, end of the 90s, that style of writing, it caused the crash because what they found is that when people started dropping titles, they weren't dropping them one at a time, they were dropping them eight at a time because they were dropping all of the X books or all of the Superman books or all of the Spider-Man books. So, and especially when they're coming in for the speculator market. Well, and along with that was that the whole bubble business was the fact that a lot of readers could experience sticker shock with no real warning. I, I know I, most comics at the time tended to be in the dollar and change range. These issues are, let's see, X-Men, X-Force, and X-Factor are all 350. Wolverine, Excalibur, and Uncanny X-Men are all 395. And I remember, you know, as recently as, I want to say, one or two years ago, a large chunk of Marvel's titles were still two ninety nine, so this is quite a hike. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in here, and the covers are gimmicky, so that might be part of it. There's a pretty little foil thing on the t- front of every issue, and the cover is front and back is all the one design, and it's these the art in these is beautiful. It is '90s art, and almost all of the art from most series in the '90s is beautiful unless it's drawn by rob liefeld but we'll leave that for now yeah the the art is great and this was the start of the era where the artists were starting to get more and more control over the story so it was still very much a partnership in 93 a couple years down the road the artists are going to be able to basically draw the scripts any way they wanted see also stories about exactly why pete david left the hulk track those down for more details but the art was getting very good they were moving out of you know, the era where it was still primarily the writers and trying to move more towards partnership. And then a couple of years later, it was leaning too much in the artist direction. You always need to have a balance so that everyone's contributing. But yeah, as we said earlier, the main impact of this story is that this is where Wolverine loses the adamantium 
And one of the side effects is that he can still pop his claws. So this is the point where he discovers his claws are natural. And that's something that was kind of spoiled in advance. At the time, the, the letters columns had reader pulls. So readers could, you know, read the letters columns and then have pull, you know, pulls about what's going on. Some of the results of these polls showed up in future stories. One of the reader polls that they had was asking people whether or not they thought that Wolverine's claws were natural. So if he lost the adamantium, would he still have his claws? And the winner of that vote was yes. And when you have that, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, they announce, here's uh, Return of Magneto coming in this six-part crossover event celebrating 30 years where part five out of six is a Wolverine issue. A lot of people put that together and said, hey, Magneto's going to rip the metal out of Wolverine, and he's still going to have bone claws. So that's a little bit unfortunate, because I was reading it at the time, and when I was reading around here, I think that pulls around the 290s for the issues, and we were already predicting that Wolverine was going to lose the medal. And, you know, we had that because the poll started before they announced the return of Magneto, and when they announced the return of Magneto, my friends and I were like, okay, that's where it's happening, right there, part five out of six, that's the point in the story. Well, and one of the other things that was kind of nice that they peppered in there is sort of a, I don't want know whether or not it counts as actual foreshadowing since it's something that didn't actually kill him but one of the lines in uncanny x-men is that wolverine is ready to attack magneto when he crashes the funeral and cyclops says no we need to hang back until we know what his new power level is like until we know what we're dealing with you're the drop dead last person i want against him and you know Drop dead last is kind of appropriate for this since Wolverine does come very close to dying. Yeah, and that is odd because at that point, if I were Cyclops, I'd be saying, you're the second last person who should be facing him. Colossus is dead last. Well, Colossus is still very big and strong when he's not in his metal form. So he can just power down and still punch Magneto. And he's just as effective as everyone else is right now which is to say not at all because magneto could apparently he was so strong he could freeze people based on halting all of the iron in their blood yeah which leads to other issues all the non-magnetic metal in your body is mine to command well it's iron is very much magnetic and it is susceptible to magnetic fields but he was using it as kind of a, a control mechanism if you do that, that means you're stopping the hemoglobin in place, which means your blood stops flowing, which means you suffocate on the spot. You can't really hold that against, well, Lobdell in this case was the guy who wrote that Uncanny X-Men issue. So I, I wouldn't hold that against him because it's kind of outside his purview. It's not one of the prerequisites to the field. That's something where you'd think it would be editors or assistant editors or some other assistant who should be fact-checking that if it occurs to any of them that it needs to be checked. And it just would not occur to a lot of people to go check that. So, yeah, it draws me the wrong way, but I'm not surprised it's there. Yeah, but for the most part, that's that's the significance of the story. Yeah. And I think that's the event that put it on this list. I mean, it's not badly written, but when I look at the history of the X-Men, I can pick out what I consider to be more entertaining stories that did not make the list. So I believe, you know, we talk about the three factors that bring things to the list. There's entertainment value. There's significance to continuity, and there's messages and morals and meanings. And I think this is the significance to continuity. 
because it's got an immediate and significant impact on Wolverine and sets up a major Colossus storyline while bringing Magneto back. But if you go back through the history of the title, you know, there's Claremont and Byrne issues that I think were more entertaining we could pull out. There's Claremont and Cockrum issues, Claremont and Smith. There's the Neil Adams and Roy Thomas partnership in the 60s, I think, is underrated. Without that, we wouldn't have the giant-sized X-Men because the creators who did that wouldn't have been excited to bring these characters back. There's a lot more issues that could have been on the list, but weren't. And I think this is here just because of what it does for Wolverine. When he loses the adamantium and we see what he is with the bone claws, and it begs questions that are further explored in Origin, which came out around the year 2000, those are, I think, the key points that caused it to bubble up through and make it not just into a list of enjoyable stories, but a list of Marvel's 75 greatest stories. And as you mentioned, keeping things bubbling on different burners and keeping plot lines moving, this does directly lead into two more crossovers. As I mentioned, after this, you know, pretty much immediately after this, the Acolytes kidnap Quicksilver's daughter, who at the time is the only grandchild of Magneto, and the Avengers join the X-Men to get her back in an event called Blood Ties. And a couple years down the line, the fact that Xavier had taken Magneto's mind from him, as he said it, in X-Men 25 after the battle with Wolverine, or the end of the battle with Wolverine is Xavier taking Magneto's mind away, and that's what causes him to become Onslaught or to form Onslaught, it's still a very weird figure. And that leads to the whole Onslaught crossover. But on the flip side, you've got a lot of stuff that isn't actually relevant, you know, or as relevant today. Quicksilver is no longer related to Magneto, and Magneto has died and come back to life. Lorna Dane is now Magneto's daughter. Jamie Madrox, Guido, never pronounce his last name, but Strong Guy, and Nightcrawler have all died and come back. Jamie Madrox was a mutant at the time, I think. He no longer is. Magic, Ileana Rasputin, is no longer a child and is no longer dead. And Wolverine does have his adamantium again. Yeah, although he's now dead again, too. Oh, yeah. Well, no, he he hadn't died before at the time, so now he is dead right now. So Yeah, so this, he got the adamantium back. Now he's dead and is soon to be replaced by a combination of X-23 and Old Man Logan. Apparently, those characters are both going to survive Secret Wars, which is and still will be an ongoing event when this episode comes out. Which makes me kind of nervous about Project Wide Awake, because that was really the only other quote-unquote permanent thing that came out of this. The government having sentinels. That's about it. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that is it. This becomes a pivotal point in the X-Men history for the last 30 years. There's, I mean, a lot of it has been rewritten. But this led to the events that led to the events that led to the events that did that. Yeah. It's one of the first times that they had crossovers, because as you could probably guess by the issue numbers, we'd had crossovers before. The first big crossover was, you know, back in the late 80s. I mean, there was the return of Jean Grey with some degree of crossover when they introduced X-Factor. There was some character crossover between New Mutants and Uncanny X-Men, but aside from things like Inferno... For the most part, the storylines were in one book or the other. What was going on in Uncanny X-Men would impact which characters you see walking through the mansion in the background of New Mutants, but you don't get a lot of part one is in X-Men 
issue whatever, and part two is in New Mutants. That wasn't really going on. I would say that that really started with the Inferno, because even Follow the Mutants, they sort of glimpse each other, but each story then had a complete story arc. Yeah, I do remember reading that, and I read it all together, but that is true. It does seem like it would be fairly easy to read just the Uncanny or just the X Factor for that. Yeah, to the point that even the essentials include one or the other, whereas Inferno, they include the core of the story as it goes from book to book to book, because you have to do that to get a coherent story out. So it wasn't until really X-Men launched with issue one that they started doing that. Even Wolverine's solo series was predominantly a standalone solo series up to this point. Yeah. Honestly, though, one of the things that sets this crossover apart from a lot of other crossovers I've read is the fact that it seems to focus more on the villains than the heroes because, you know, Quicksilver shows up in two or is it three issues? I, I He's in X-Factor and he's in X-Men. I think he's in Uncanny X-Men, but I can't remember for certain. But other than just, you know, being a background character for the funeral. But the X-Men themselves for an X-Titles crossover... The main team only shows up in the third issue, or the third through sixth issues, but they're not in X-Factor or X-Force. So this is much more focus on the Acolytes than a lot of crossovers would generally do. Like I said, it makes me think more of Acts of Vengeance, just because that's more about the villains than the heroes. It is, and that is definitely true of this. We see a lot more of the Acolytes and what they wanted to do than anything else. So now for the part of the podcast that I have shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, where we discuss and examine any messages, morals, and meanings that are coming out of this. If there's you know anything in here where the authors are trying to put a social message forward. And there's a little bit of cursory discussion of that when Colossus changes allegiances. Same with a couple of the kids from X-Factor. So Rusty and Skids also end up joining the Acolytes. But that's about it. Yeah, I I don't see a whole lot over the arc of the story, other than maybe the importance of family, because, you know, like we said, everyone's dealing with the death of Ileana, and she mattered to so many people. I don't remember whether she was an active member of the New Mutants when Magneto was running the school. She was, yeah. Okay, so he does talk about losing Doug Ramsey. You know, the, every, everyone deals with losing Ileana in their own way. I, Xavier feels so isolated because he feels responsible for her death. Colossus, as we mentioned, goes through anger and depression. And it seems at the end a bit of acceptance. Definitely grief, definitely guilt. Banshee gets a nice little speech talking to Bishop about the importance of remembering the people you've lost because... Bishop and then later Shatterstar both mentioned that they don't really understand memorial services. Bishop sees them as almost unnecessary and Shatterstar sees them as masochistic, but everyone else just sort of says, you know, this is someone who mattered to us and we have to remind ourselves that why they mattered and why they're worth missing. Yeah. yeah there are elements like that. It's dealt with in context. For Shatterstar and Bishop, it's more character moments, right? Because neither of them are from this version of reality, right? This bishop is from, I believe it's Earth 1191. So, you know, I, I get where they're trying to cope with it and wrap their heads around it, but it never seems like the point of the story. You know, it's not like you're a Silver Surfer parable, which is very much about 
man's relationship with God. That's the one that stands out so far on this list as being the, the most messagey of all the books. This one really feels like it's it's not message-driven. They don't even really deal with, you know, the X-Men as an ostracized minority to that degree. It is really and truly, let's do some major plot setup here. Let's tell some big events. Let's have this major story. And let's set up a new era for the X-Men following the 30th anniversary. And, of course, always with the X-Men, it's patience and working toward a better world rather than bludgeoning humanity with how much they have to accept mutants because they're not too subtle about mutants being an oppressed people in here they make references to hitler in pretty much every issue if i remember correctly i didn't pay as much attention for it in excalibur wolverine but you know magneto says he doesn't want to become a hitler he doesn't respect uh, humanity because they might because hitler was a human and they might produce another hitler x-factor calls bs on the acolytes for killing in magneto's name because you know the nazis killed his family and they actually show magneto as a younger man in uncanny with his first daughter who died when she was just tiny like a baby in his arms and that's just i don't i don't even know if that's supposed to be in nazi germany but it feels like it also, that's another thing that they changed about Magneto over the years is they have a reference that a bout with hepatitis caused his mutation to manifest later in life, even though if you read the Magneto Testament, his he did have a little bit of his powers while he was in the camps. Yeah. Um, in any event, I think that wraps it up, unless you had any closing thoughts. I think we've got everything. All right. So it's a much shorter reading assignment for next week. It is Thor issue 337 which has been reprinted in Mighty Thor, The Ballad of Beta Ray Bill, in The Very Best of Marvel Comics, in Thor Visionaries, Walt Simonson's Thor, Volume 1, in Beta Ray Bill, God Hunter, Issue 1, and it's also available via Comixology and Marvel Digital Unlimited. So, Jim, thanks once again for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, and for those of you listening at home, you can rate the show on iTunes or Stitch or whatever podcatcher you happen to use. It really does help the show get noticed and build an audience. Feel free to share it with friends if you think they may enjoy it. And thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one -on -one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.